Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the final History 605 of Season 2. This is Episode 20 of Season 2, and after this episode is complete, we'll be taking a break for a couple of months. It's been great being on the show, but I need a respite to kind of plan out Season 3. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, hope you'll come back and listen to the other episodes. In the meantime... There's uh, previous episodes. You can dial back down the web page or down the uh, service you use and listen to previous episodes you may have missed. Thanks for listening. So I hope you enjoy the last episode of Season 2. Welcome to History 605. Right. Today on the show, we have David Grabitsky. David is the Assistant Society Director and the Museum Director at the South Dakota State Historical Society. So, David, welcome to the show. Always glad to be here, Ben. Always glad to talk about the future of history. We uh, wanted to talk about uh, the museum today, that we're in the midst of completing the plan and uh, with the hopes of a groundbreaking in the spring and uh, moving dirt. We're getting excited about uh, all of that. So, but I wondered if you could just briefly give a little bit of your background. You, you uh, joined the society in um, April of uh, 22, mm-hmm. and I think you are the third person from the society to be on the podcast. So anyway, glad to have you. And uh, wonder if you give us a little little bit of your background. Well, I started in the history field uh, all the way back in 1990. So it's been almost as long as the building has been around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, I got to work for the Minnesota Historical Society for 21 years. Okay. And most recently was in Texas. Okay. And along the way, um, picked up the specialty of uh, working on museum buildings. And oftentimes people would come and visit us and uh, say, we'd, we'd like you to look at our plans. Mm-hmm. And it would probably be sometime on a Friday afternoon. And we'd just casually ask them, well, when are you anticipating breaking ground? And they would say, well, on Sunday. Oh. <laughs> and and so really our, our advice wasn't uh, all that uh, uh, good for us to give at that time because uh-huh. uh, at that point the plans are fairly well along and anything that we might suggest will cost them plenty of money. Yes, it's begin to or it's it's best to begin early with the concept and so forth. And yeah. I think well as we've walked through this process together on the uh, well you joined us just after the bill had passed and so but really we're in the ground ground uh, work of the design of the building from the beginning. So, 
uh, your background and your consulting around the country on doing these projects has been a great uh, support to the whole project. So I want to spend the conversation going through a little bit about the history of the South Dakota State Historical Society. And then I think we'd, we would, um, perhaps not as bad as your, your common consultee that you might say, uh, but, you know, organizations uh, dance with the girl what brung them, to use the old phrase, right? You kind of have the materials you have, you have the people you have, and then you try to make sense of how to, uh, in this case, build a building for the organization you have. So it's, you're kind of fitting people into a building. Uh, and in this case, we have outgrown the fit that existed in the building in the 1990s uh, in a lot of ways. So I think maybe it's, it's good as a historical agency and as history-minded people and as uh, an audience interested in history to maybe talk about how did we get to 1989 and 1990. And you've done a lot of um, looking into the origins of the historical society. I was wondering if... It's it starts with the territorial days in Yankton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, the bill that created the Historical Society as we know it now was on May seventh, eighteen sixty-two. So we mm. existed about twenty-seven years before the state. Yeah. And since the state came along, uh, we've been able to have the privilege of walking beside the state the whole way. The whole way. Yeah. Um. And what were some of the early items that were collected by this first? And what was the name? The Old Settlers Association? Yeah, the Old Settlers Association was founded with the passage of the bill in 1862. And Mm -hmm. one of the requirements was that you had to have residency in Dakota Territory uh, prior to the bill passing in 1862. And that was kind of a defect um, of that bill. And so uh, another uh, rival society that addressed that defect was uh, started, and uh, the legislature um, in its third uh, session then in uh, 1863 uh, unified those two into the Historical Society of Dakota. Okay. And uh, that uh, continued throughout the territorial period, uh, remained in Yankton, even though the seat of government moved to Bismarck. Um, and then uh, when we entered into uh, the Union in 1889, um, the some founders, George Hand and others, oh, yeah. thought that um, uh, having the Historical Society in another city other than where the capital was, was a, a uh, detraction, mm-hmm. um, a distraction, um, and so they actually physically wrote it into the Constitution in 1890 that um, wherever the society was going to be, uh, uh, there also was the capital. Wherever the capital okay. was, was where the society would be. Right. And we know today, certainly with the state archives, I mean, they have um, a statutory responsibility or obligation to collect the documents that um, are produced by, by a state government. Mm-hmm. So it would be, if the, if the Historical Society today had remained in Yankton, we'd be trucking a lot of documents back and forth all the time. Um, who, besides George Hand, who are some of the other kind of movers and shakers in the... Well, I, I think 
the original uh, people that were named um, in the bill in 1862 were the first uh, starters. Mm -hmm. And of all of those that were named at that time, some 60, 70 men, uh, there were 10 of them that uh, proceeded through many of the first meetings of the society. And then uh, what was really important was that by the second meeting, uh, other men joined. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 12 more that were crucial second supporters and okay. uh, really helped the society get going. One of the first supporters that we had was a man named Moses Kimball Armstrong, mm-hmm. who's often thought of as being the first historian of South Dakota. Oh. Um, he, in fact, did the first program that the mm-hmm. Society ever did in uh, the winter of 1863-64 okay. on the settlement of Dakota Territory. Yeah. And uh, uh, he reprised that uh, program a couple of times. Okay. But when he was elected to Congress, of course, his energy okay. and that was focused on, on uh, serving the people of Dakota Territory very well. Yeah in Congress. Um, George Kingsbury is another luminary, and of course, um, General Beadle, that guy seems to be everywhere. (laughs) Yes, he does. Yeah, he even shows up in 1877. Um, The society, even though it met in the territorial capital, Uh uh, stored some of its uh, collections in the old post office in Yankton. Okay. And uh, the city of Yankton used that post office uh, to help others migrate into Dakota Territory, specifically to the Black Hills. Okay. And uh, there is a story in the paper, of course, of an African-American woman who uh, moves into the old post office and then, uh, to make herself some space, moves some of the records out onto the, the porch of the, of the post office. Uh-huh. And... Uh, uh, as a result, those records uh, were got wet in the rain, uh-huh. and uh, General Beadle was called uh, to uh, secure those records and, and put them somewhere else, and the paper was uh, pointed in its criticism toward the society, yeah. um, certainly welcomed uh, the young woman into the post office because uh-huh. they wanted more people living in the territory, but yeah. you historical society, you better... You better uh, take care of your collections take care better. Of your collections. Yeah. Well, and that's that's uh, the mission of the society today is to collect and preserve. And so, um, uh, but when you, all you have is maybe a few square feet in a mm-hmm. in a overused post office building in a territorial capital, it's it gets to be quite a challenge. Um, what were some of the first things that uh, the society collected? Well, the the fir- very first things were 714 books uh, uh-huh. that were just shipped to us. We didn't ask for them. Uh, they just showed up. And uh, uh, graciously, one of the members uh, actually paid for them. Um, there are many of the things that we wouldn't collect today. They were uh, records of other places and other entities, uh-huh. um, not about South Dakota necessarily or okay. Dakota Territory. Um so, you know, records like that are something we wouldn't collect. But in those days, um, it was more a matter of uh, what we would call the Internet today. It, it's yeah. it's uh, copying and distributing records because the greatest threat to any of our collections is fire. 
And uh, if they're all burned up, then we can't get them back. And so by duplicating them and sending them off to other places Uh was a measure of preservation. Okay. Okay. So when when Peer wins the—we'll skip forward a little bit. When Peer wins the capital fight, and the capital is set up in Peer at at this point of statehood and so forth— what was the first building in Pier where the Historical Society went to? Well, that was the first thing that they had to uh, solve right away was where they were going to meet. And they actually met in the uh, territorial capital, the statehood capital early on. When the current capital is built, mm-hmm. um, that's when the society moves in there. But they also needed places to store their things, and, and so... They looked at a former bank building, mm-hmm. uh, McDonald Brothers, on the east side of Pier. Um, they used the Pier University, which yeah. uh, later moves to Huron. Okay. Um, and you know the reason that they had access to that was uh, not only was President Blackburn on our board at the time, but his son-in-law, Delorme Robinson, was on the board as well. And so he uh, coaxed his father-in-law into uh, letting us store things at the the, uh, college. At the college. Um, And that college then closes in the 20s? Um, Or it moves to Huron in the... Yeah, in in 18... 92 oh, or okay. so, um, okay. it moves to Huron, and then uh, it actually exists uh, for quite a long time, uh, okay. well into the 20th century, yes. and uh, actually became a, a, a private uh, business uh, for a college. It wasn't yeah. state-supported or right. uh, religiously supported as it had been, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, when they couldn't make a go of it, um, it was closed. Yeah. Uh, so the capital, uh, it, it's amazing to think, for those who are familiar with Pier, that at one time all of state government fit in the Capitol building. Uh, and, the, and the Historical Society, which was created in 1901 by mm-hmm. the legislature and the governor, Governor Harried signs that bill into office and or into uh, existence in a statute in February of 1901. And you mentioned Delorme Robinson, but mm-hmm. it must be his, is it his brother, Doan? Actually, there was no relationship between no Doan and, and Delorme. They oh. just happened to have the same common last okay. name. Okay, interesting. Well, Doan Robinson is brought on to be what they called the secretary of the society, mm-hmm. which today we would use the term executive director probably. Mm-hmm. Um of the society, and their office then is in the first floor of the Capitol. So if you visit the Capitol today on the first floor and you visit today, there's a little bookshop um, and gift shop there, and just behind the gift shop next to the stairway, the the marble steps that go up to the second floor, is a small door, and that was the Historical Society's office. So that was Doan Robinson's office. Now, what would would he he have had these articles, these these books, and these things like that from from Yankton moved to there? Oh yeah, um, one of the things that the society always did uh, throughout time was that whenever there was a name change, mm-hmm. uh, people associated with the society they were migrating from one name to the next would take the time to uh, transfer the property of the old association to the new one. Okay, and so. 
very much uh, the historical society has a great provenance uh, yeah. as we look at it from a museum point of view. Yeah. Um, the chain of custody from 1862 to the present is very strong. Okay. So you were mentioning the other day we were giving a tour and you pointed out a, a couple articles, a couple of items from this early collecting period. What was the first thing that we collected? Well, the, the first thing that was recorded okay. uh, was a, a, a very simple plank of wood. It's, it's okay. uh, maybe two and a half feet long and mm-hmm. about six inches wide. It's a plank of mahogany that mm-hmm. was taken by members of the first South Dakota uh, when they were serving the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And it was taken off of blockhouse number four in Manila. Okay. So this, uh, for listeners that may not be too familiar, in, in 1898, the Spanish-American War begins. Mm-hmm. There's a call for volunteers. This is where the famed Rough Riders are, are joined the U.S., volunteers, but states also raised volunteer infantry or cavalry or artillery mm-hmm. units in South Dakota, uh, supported by the governor, raised the mm-hmm. first South Dakota volunteer infantry. Mm-hmm. But they didn't go to Cuba. They a lot, of, a lot of west of the Mississippi states wound up sending their boys off to the Philippines to um, capture the Philippines from the Spanish, but the Spanish fell almost immediately. And mm-hmm. so then there was a battle in Manila to take control of the Philippines from the Filipinos. Um, this war, um, uh, well, Mark Twain is opposed to the war. A lot of very, a lot of many Americans um, are opposed to this war. And the South Dakota governor at one point uh, in the histories that's provided to us um, wishes to bring the first South Dakota back because he doesn't think that this is what they, those boys signed up for or what the troops were raised to go, go do. Uh, Cuba gets its independence. That's uh, in the Platt Amendment, I think, as the mm-hmm. war is declared, that that uh, Cuba will get its independence, but uh, the Philippines uh, did not get their independence until after the Second World War. That takes a, uh, takes a long toll. But, but so these South Dakota boys that go off to, uh, to join ostensibly to fight in Cuba against the Spanish, wind up in the Philippines, on the other side of the planet um, in 1899. And uh, they've brought back, over the years, the Historical Society has collected many things from uh, these soldiers who brought back from the Philippines, uh, their weapons, their army kit, and so forth, but also interesting things like this plank from this blockhouse, which had been probably a fighting position for the first South Dakota or some of the, one of the companies in that. So it's interesting that uh, uh, this is the first thing that's recorded. So what's the oldest thing that we have? Well, the oldest thing that we know the society got uh, was found in Jackson County mm-hmm. in 1882. Okay. Uh, the newspaper records for us that a uh, farmer was uh, digging a pen- post- uh, post hole uh, to build a fence. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a part of taming the Great Plains and closing the range and all of that. Uh, as he was digging this hole, he found a four inch rock uh, that was about an inch wide. On one mm-hmm. side it said M dot K dot, and on the other side it says 1777. Now, exactly mm-hmm. what that means, we don't <laughs> know. 
but we do know that it was turned over to uh, someone who worked for the uh, government on the Board of Equalization, and he turned it over to George Kingsbury. Who was uh, writing much of the copy for the collections and for the the publications of the society at the time. Mm -hmm. So Don Robinson is the secretary of the Historical Society then from 1901 to 1925. And I think for those 24 years really sets up the society to be in pretty good stead. Although I think, you know, with our modern ability to record and track and database management and so forth, and probably paper that may have been lost or not kept track of. There's a lot of things in our collection that we don't really um, know a lot of the details we'd like to know about them. How did they move from the Capitol then into the Soldiers and Sailors Building? Well, that was an interesting story and and something that the society had long wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when the Capitol was built, they wanted to have their own uh, historical society building. As uh, you can imagine, um, historical society buildings are a very specialized mm-hmm. building that is meant to transmit things that we see in the present to those who are coming after us, um, who will come um, and and be South Dakotans mm-hmm. 100 years from now or right. 200 years or so forth. And uh, there was a lot of talk of... Uh, getting this new building, and um, in 1919, a bill was passed to raise some money, and uh, the money was deposited in various banks around uh, South Dakota, but one of the things that that impacted us was uh, the farm crisis of the 1920s. We often think of the 1930s as being very tough uh, times and and the Roaring Twenties is mm-hmm. a great time and so forth, but it was not so great if you were a farmer. And so, uh, a number of the banks in which the money was held uh, failed, mm-hmm. and so we we lost about twelve thousand out of uh, seventy thousand dollars wow. to build this new building. And it it took the legislature eventually to uh, pass the money, um, and then a cornerstone was laid and. 1930, and the okay. building opened in 1932. So just as the, the Great Depression is getting going, mm-hmm. we, we probably lucked into the timing of just getting that money raised and appropriated and, and the building built, and then state government hits another decade or so of pretty hard times. Well, I'm always uh, amazed at uh, people in the 1930s that, you know, when the times got tough, the tough-funded history yeah. And that's something that is important to remember today. It's right. not an optional extra. It's it's something that is very important. In fact, if you go back to uh, the original bill back in 1862, uh-huh. it was the fourth bill ever passed. Wow. And so they really placed a strong emphasis over the years on yeah. the importance of history. Yeah. What would If you were to visit then at, the, at opening day of, say, the Soldiers and Sailors Building in 1932, what would you have seen? There's their full-up museum? Yeah, they would have started with a, a number of things. Um, there was a meeting of the statewide American Legion, for example, okay. that uh, that also met. Uh, bands played and marched from the Charles Hotel uh, okay. to the Soldiers and Sailors. Okay. 
specifically with the um, with the cornerstone laying. Okay. But then in in 1932, they uh, also did the same thing that that mm-hmm. this building was based on one built in Bismarck of all places. Okay. Um, uh, they they thought that uh, the building there was a very a good building, and uh, they wanted yeah. to replicate it. I see. And as luck would have it, when we built our building uh, in 1989, uh, other societies came and visited us also. So right. what one society does uh, generally impacts the rest sure. of them. Sure. Well, the Soldiers and Sailors building is certainly a, a very impressive-looking uh, building just across the street from the Capitol, and it's kind of... Um, you know, it looks very official, very state government-y, and uh, it has the style of a, kind of a Romanesque in some regards. And, uh, of course, the collection is growing, and the collection is growing. And by the probably the 1970s or so, we're outgrowing that building. There's also other things going on in the federal government in the 70s. Let, let, let's talk about, so what did the functions of the Historical Society at the time was to publish the the collections, which would be a biannual mm-hmm. publication of a book filled with articles about South Dakota history, to manage uh, the archives, uh, the state archives. Also, there's probably it's it's in the midst of time to some degree, but the state library at one at one point, probably in the 50s, separates and becomes a distinct entity in state government. There's also uh, the archaeology, which had been done, uh, you know, archaeological work had been done. I mean, Pettigrew, uh, one of the founders of Sioux Falls, um, becomes senator from from South Dakota. Uh, he's he's. If you go to the archaeological research center in Rapid City, and look through their library and their database, some of the earliest sites are ones that Pettigrew wrote the annotations for. He and his brother were very active in the Sioux Falls area. Minnehaha County, Lincoln County, the Indian Mounds, Barrel Mounds, and so forth, note, noting these places. So, so archaeological work is being done, or had been done, but in the 70s, it's kind of organized more clearly on the federal government level. And in 74, the state archivist position is created. But uh, other things in the 70s regarding historical preservation has also started. In fact, our SHPO office just has celebrated this last year in 2022, its 50th year. So the 70s is kind of a burgeoning um, set of organizational, statutory, federal um, emphasis on historical preservation, archaeology, and all of these things kind of come into under the rubric then or under the, the auspices then of the historical society. Uh, thus, adding to the space requirements of an office building for the staff. And there's also state museums, not only in Pierre, but the W.H. Over Museum uh, in Vermilion, and the Smith-Zimmerman Museum in Madison have, have, a, have a tenuous tie to the state history. Yeah, and the uh, State Agricultural Museum in that's Brookings. Right. And, and the State Ag mm-hmm. Museum in Brookings. So w- with the growing push out of the building, there's uh, efforts in the 80s to um, get something that will uh, encompass the, the whole of the society. I wonder if you could walk through some of that 
um, stuff for the building of what uh, for our current building. Well, really, it starts Ben in in nineteen uh, fifties. Mm. Uh, they were talking about building a, an addition to the soldiers and sailors building, which okay. never got built. And, and keep in mind that this is about a generation after it originally opened. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do: is give it another generation's worth of life. Yeah. Uh, at the Cultural Heritage Center. Um, and that is something that we we see oftentimes, and I think a lot of the uh, organization that happened happened because of things that happened in the 1930s right. with the growth of government and mm-hmm. uh, providing services to its citizens and so forth. Um, really moved that along, but you're right. By the 1980s. Uh, an initial meeting was held in 84, and uh, soil samples were taken in 1986. Mm-hmm. And uh, the building, which um, uh, they thought was going to open in the spring of 89, opened in November mm-hmm. of 1989. So uh, it, exe- it exemplifies the uh, phenomenon that we see in, in his, uh, history buildings is sometimes they, they don't... Uh, uh, come mm-hmm. exactly when you expect them to. Right. There are always delays. Sure. In any building project, there's there's bound to be things that hiccups along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we will find a few more of those. Yeah. Uh, but as the as the current building was designed, it has it encompasses the museum, but it also brought the archives under the umbrella mm-hmm. of into the same building. Yeah. And. Uh, it really reflects that we are a full-service history organization. We, right. If you want to do history in South Dakota, this is the place to do it. Right. No matter what it is that you want to do, if it's genealogy, you'll mm-hmm. visit our library. Uh, if you want to learn about house history, you'll visit our preservation office. Right. If you want to read history, there's the press mm-hmm. and so forth. If there's a way to do history, we do it. Right. The Arikara style of the building, it's a unique... Uh, building, people often say it's it looks like a sod, and it's literally built in the side of the hill. Mm-hmm. What are the attributes that that provides for preservation of the items and well, the artifacts? Certainly, it, it provides a moderation in temperature and humidity, and that's one of the things that you want to do in a in a building. Again, these are very specialized building; mm-hmm. they're meant to transmit things that we see today Mm -hmm. so that South Dakotans uh, 100 years from now might find valuable just as we find them valuable temperature and humidity that it's it's in not that uh, collections uh, suffer a lot from uh, extremes in temperature but it's in moderation of those stream, uh, extremes yeah. that it's a very slow build up to a higher temperature and it's a very slow uh, reduction in uh, relative humidity and and so forth that that you want to inspire because when things uh, go more quickly mm-hmm. um, they deteriorate faster yeah so it- People often ask you and I and uh, Shelley Thompson at the archives, why don't you digitize everything? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, we tend to, to, to kind of chuckle at that comment because uh, the, the, the task at hand in digitizing how many documents? One point some million documents? And 
That's what's been digitized so far, um, yeah. but we have many more to go. But also the preservation quality. I mean, how long will a piece, if a piece of paper is well preserved in temperature, humidity, and so forth, how long will that last? There are uh, papyri and other forms of paper that have existed for thousands of years. Right. But uh, digital uh, files, if they're left uh, unattended, uh, will last about five years, according yeah. to studies that have been done by the Smithsonian and uh, Library of Congress and other places like that. Right. Um, so you, you have to... Uh, migrate them uh, to the latest technology. If mm-hmm. you think about all of the things that uh, we've seen in our lifetime, uh, you know, how easy is it to read an 8-track tape? Yeah. Uh, how easy is it to read <laughs> a cassette tape uh, right. these days? Um, you can't. And so uh, really one of the, the best preservation methods is uh, via microfilm because uh, all you need is a source of light and a source of magnification yeah. in order to read what's on the medium. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, without that, you you do digitize, and then you do have to run these maintenance programs. Right. And as electrons drop off, mm-hmm. um, these maintenance programs guess, uh, literally, uh, what the electrons should be. And they're very good at it, yeah. and they're getting better all the time. Right. Um, but as historians, you don't like to guess. Right. And uh, uh, sometimes one, the evidence surprises you. Yeah. You know, you yeah. Yeah. If you drop a the for an uh, mm-hmm. um, that changes the nature of the document. Right. Right. So the original is very important. So we keep the originals for preservation purposes, and we digitize for access purposes. So Correct. We are often digitizing um, records, audio files, and so forth, and putting them online for people to listen to or use the documents. Mm. But we know that behind the scenes there's um, Sarah or somebody is uh, doing the software maintenance um, as well as the security. You know, it strikes me that uh, you have have tons of uh, photographs digitized and I suppose a nefarious person could hack into the uh, database where those photographs are kept and alter the photographs and change history. Absolutely. History changes all the time. The past doesn't. Right. Right. Well, that's a longer conversation, maybe, uh, but uh, certainly a worthy one to talk about uh, the difference between the past, which is, uh, you've quoted... uh, It's immutable. Immutable, and it's over Mm -hmm. as of two seconds ago. Absolutely. (laughs) Or even less. And you can't change it. And you can't change it. It's also, though, that history is, since Herodotus... Uh, history, it, that word is based off of the Greek word for inquiry. Yeah. So the history is the answer to the question that Herodotus asked of the ancient world. Uh, and historians since have been asking questions of the past mm-hmm. and writing up the answers based on evidence. And that's why history changes. New evidence comes mm-hmm. to light. It depends um, on what questions you ask of the past. And questions change as well. That's right. Let's just wrap up here a little bit about the current design and the uh, plan. So we had thought history grows. History takes space. Uh, if you're an archivist or a museum director, you know this. Then, And how fast is the cubic feet in the museum artifact storage area consumed on an annual basis? How much space is taken, would you say? Well, w- w- one commentator in the past said, well, history piles up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. It, uh, it certainly does that. And, and we probably accumulate things. We, we're very careful about what we collect. Um, things are not old. Um, certainly at 53, I'm, I qualify as, <laughs> as somewhat old, yet I'm not historic. What makes something historic is that it has significance and integrity, and we uh, evaluate everything that comes in Mm -hmm. on that basis, and we grow at a rate of about 250 cubic feet uh, in the the artifacts every year, and another 300 cubic feet in the archives. Yeah. So we had done some estimating, and this was, this came up during the session last year, the legislative session, and in our stating our case to the, the members about the appropriation was that our building was growing mm-hmm. uh, or our needs were growing, and we, we expected that in three to five years we'd be out of room and we would be unable to fulfill our statutory obligations and also our grander, in many ways, public obligations to preserve the history of the state. And so uh, fortunately and unanimously, the legislature agreed with the governor and appropriated the funds, and now we're looking at breaking ground this spring. And this looks like another fine example of people uh, associated with the historical society thinking about the future. Right, right. Yes, and that's uh, certainly our mission as we as we prepare or and preserve and collect the state's history uh, for the future. And we're excited about the building that will allow us to continue to do that. So thanks a lot for being on the History 605. It's been a great chat. Pleasure to be here, Ben. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.